steps out in front of St. Alphonse's heaps Missing both the shoes with some broken teeth responses Bloody stained glass like busted in pieces on the ground The arresting officer familiar with the situation Picked him up the day before at a notorious location Hey folks, uh, welcome to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here today, broadcasting from the uh, southern edge of the polar vortex, uh, a.k.a. Iowa, uh, where it is running, what, 10 to 30 degrees below uh, normal, while it's running, what, 45 degrees above normal up in the Arctic. Polar bears are having trouble finding food, and we're having trouble planting food down here. All right, so again, welcome to today's Fallon Forum. Uh, Charles Goldman uh, co-hosting with me, and we've got sandwiched in between us here, Joseph Glazebrook, who we're going to beat up pretty bad right now. Actually, probably not the case. Uh, we want to talk about the, uh, the, the latest way in which the Republicans seem to be wanting to alienate Latino voters. Um, this is through the proposed ban on sanctuary cities, which you've been tracking pretty closely, Joseph. Uh, that's right, Ed. And it's and it's a horrible law, and it just passed last week. So, we've got this to deal with. It's uh, basically what it is. It's a law that the uh, and it hasn't been signed into law yet. I should clarify. So, so Governor Reynolds could do the right thing and not sign it, but we're not optimistic. Uh, but basically, what it does is it uh, prohibits uh, local uh, government agencies, such as a sheriff's department, or city law enforcement agencies, such as a city police department. Uh, from exercising discretion in how it handles uh, people who are allegedly um, subject to what we attorneys call an immigration hold, which is basically uh, a, a request by, a, by federal immigration officials to hold somebody uh, while they're awaiting transfer to federal custody for immigration proceedings. I know there's been a strong coalition of organizations uh, fighting to try to stop uh, stop this uh, law. The uh, I know LULAC, uh, the uh, League of United Latin American Citizens, uh, American Friends Service Committee, uh, Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement. There's been lots of organizations. The uh, Civil Liberties Union as well, I'm sure. So, um, and who and who on the other side felt this was such a compelling issue in Iowa that that law needed to even be addressed? Law enforcement, apparently, right? Well, actually, no. No, that would be uh, the opposite of what most law enforcement agencies have said. They I mean, have no interest in. Show me your papers. Yeah, I mean, there might be some support, but I think that uh, – I know that, for example, the city of Des Moines opposes the law. I know that uh, many uh, sheriffs oppose the law because it removes their discretion about how to handle uh, cases. I don't, I don't know if there are – I don't have a list of all the groups that have uh, registered support for the bill, so I couldn't tell you if there's an association of uh, law enforcement that supported it one way or the other. It's a fun organization for the Koch brothers or some <laughs> other well, – I, I was thinking Homeland Security thing. behind it as well. I, I, it could be – I'm sure there are federal uh, interests who are aligned with the Trump administration yeah. who supported the bill. I think mostly, though, it is also a play to the far-right – uh, xenophobic base of the Republican Party uh, who feel that only certain immigrants should be regarded by by our society as valid. And when I say like certain, I mean those from Norway. Those right? from Norway, Norway that yes. Trump mentioned. Great Olympic team, by the way. <laughs> Absolutely. I love Norwegians. Uh, <laughs> but the truth is that our immigration policy needs to be even-handed and, and not based on the color of the skin of the people coming here. But don't Republicans realize that they're alienating a growing and significant portion of the voting base? Does that, does that not matter? Well, I think it does uh, matter. But the, here's the problem, Ed. The, the Republicans m made a decision at some point that their political power derives from 
a coalition that does not involve people of color. And that's unfortunate both for them and for uh, the country because uh, uh, so, so they've really focused only on, on, on white people. And this is a shrinking group, yes, but it is still uh, enough. And if they play up uh, those fears and concerns and anxieties yeah. for many, many good, good natured white folks um, who just get nervous or, or don't understand everything, that's how they uh, stay in power well, they, as of now. With, and with the help of gerrymandering. And that helps too. And we and there's some <laughs> interesting cases about that we could we could get into. But you know, let's let's focus on this uh, sanctuary cities law because it's just a it's an atrocious uh, piece of legislation. Um, here's what it does: it says if somebody's criminal case in the state of Iowa um, is coming to an end, and the federal government merely uh, sends a written request to the law enforcement agency. Actually, the bill doesn't even say law enforcement. It says local entity, which which means a governing body of a city or county. It doesn't even say it has to be law enforcement. So there's some people who worry that that could include like school districts and yeah. things like that. But anyway, it, it basically requires that entity to hold the person without probable cause, without a warrant, without any state-based justification to imprison this individual uh, for a period, and, and I'm looking at the law right now, it says up to seven days uh, before they release that person. So basically, the state of Iowa has to become a subservient minion of ICE, and not on the basis of what the Fourth Amendment requires, which is probable cause, but rather on the basis of some unknown written document that just says, hey, we'd like you to hold this person. Wow. So... Um and then this is happening across the country, too. This is not just Iowa. Yeah, there's there's uh, attempts in, in various locations. I know Texas is probably the most uh, well-known. That one uh, was even worse than ours. It was a little bit broader. Um, Arizona also had one that got partially struck down a few years ago. But, um, you know, Texas had one. A court there invalidated it, and then it was appealed, and the appeals court reinstated it mostly. Uh, so that one in Texas is still... You know, kicking around. But there have been several cities in Iowa that have moved forward with sanctuary status. I mean, the the smallest and, and perhaps most um, prominent at the same time is Windsor Heights, a, a town of what you know three precincts, yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, and they they overwhelmingly supported uh, establishing themselves as a sanctuary city. I, well, because it was been a lot of work for them in Windsor Heights with all the. Uh, Traffic tickets they give out. <laughs> well, they, they had to find a way to spend that revenue somehow, <laughs> <Exactly>. right? Right. <laughs> so, but I, I mean, this is a this is clearly a pushback by the Republican leadership against cities and, and other municipalities that are taking, you know, taking action through their local authority. That's right. And, and I know Republicans love local control, except when it goes against uh, things that they really treasure, like like cracking down on. Dark-skinned immigrants. So, <laughs> Just call it what it is, you know? So so once Kim Reynolds signs the bill, which I'm sure she will. Probably. Um, I assume the plan is a court challenge against this? Well, there's uh, there have been some discussions. You know, I've, I, I don't think it's my place to uh, spill all the beans mm-hmm. about what's being talked about from the various different uh, people who have an interest. I mean, I can tell you that a lot of the pushback against this bill – is not just from those public interest groups that you'd expect, but it's also from the cities themselves. Mm. I mean, uh, a local police department should be able to make its own decisions about how it deals with uh, crimes that are reported. Let's say you have somebody who's a rape victim who's, who happens to not have their papers, to, to not have a legal status in this country. They walk into a police department, and the police want to help this person, but 
<clears throat> now this person might uh, be unable to really feel comfortable seeking that assistance. And so uh, they, they feel like they're going to get detained and, and held um, on behalf of uh, the federal government just for walking into a police station and reporting a crime. Right. The local entity should be able to exercise its discretion and say, hey, look, this case, this immigration case is not nearly as much of a problem for our society as the reported rape here. We need to focus our resources on prosecuting the rapist or the other criminal that might be um, reported rather than f- focusing on, on trying to hold the victim without probable cause on behalf of the federal government. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a strong foundation for a very you know, potentially successful lawsuit. Again, you don't, I know you don't want to speculate on that, but uh, from my point of view as just an observer, I would say there's a lot of fodder there. Yeah, there, there is. And I think that there are some really uh, serious concerns. I mean, there's a lot of problems with the law. One is the Fourth Amendment that I mentioned. There's some issues with uh, – it gets deep into the weeds of, of federal preemption, which is a concept where the federal government uh, supposedly retains control over certain matters that they regulate heavily, such as immigration. And there's also some really serious First Amendment concerns. And this is kind of maybe not quite on the radar of people – uh, but it also says that the local entity shall not adopt or enforce a policy or take any other action under which the local entity prohibits or discourages the enforcement of immigration laws. Mm-hmm. And basically what that means is you can't have any policy designed to be welcoming or designed to be friendly or accepting of our brothers and sisters from other countries. And what that does is it not only uh, prohibits uh, policy, but it also prohibits the local entity from taking a uh, position on an issue, which so, is a First Amendment issue. So beyond the, beyond the probable uh, legal fallout of this legislation, Charles, your thoughts on the political fallout? Well, I mean, this is the same argument that was made when um, President Trump used it on the uh, campaign trail, which is that you know, large police departments like New York came out and said exactly what Joe just said, which is people will not report crimes, and that will in fact make it more dangerous for this group of people to be in the country. More, more in a sense of physical danger than in the sense of the non-documentation. So, so clearly, there's going to be some pushback among the Latino community and maybe the immigrant community generally. But uh, will that extend to uh, other segments of the electorate and? I mean, I, I don't. I just don't see how this does anything but hurt them in the 2018 midterm. But Latino voter participation is quite low, and the Republicans have taken advantage of that. We're going to have to have Joe Henry with Lulek on sometime to talk about that, because my understanding is that 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 participation of that demographic is rising very quickly and very dramatically. In in number, certainly, in, in terms of the numbers who could potentially vote. But obviously, this is all part of voter suppression, which is to make. It dangerous for any interaction with any level of government for the Latino population to keep them away from voting. To keep, and, of course, it, it's, it has nothing to do with crime. We already know that crime among immigrants is actually lower yeah. mm-hmm. than crime among our native population. But it makes no difference because we no longer deal in reality. Well, fi- is- final word before we run to a break, Joseph? Yeah, I mean, I just to echo that point. I mean, uh, immigrants commit less crime than than uh, citizens in this country. Uh, they come here seeking the same opportunity that every citizen in this country's uh, uh, you know descend uh, you know previous generations came looking for. And up until recently, you know, we've we've had a, a 
different policies to, to welcome those people. But it seems like all of a sudden we're doing everything we can to shut the door. And it's just wrong. It's just immoral. And uh, the politics is one thing, but the, the, what's right and wrong is what's important here, uh, most important. And it's just wrong to, uh, to, to treat people like this. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Joseph Glazeberg, folks, with uh, the, the uh, law firm of, of Glazeberg and Heard. Heard. I know, I know the name has changed. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Charles Goldman sticking around with me for the next segment. We've got a lot more to talk about uh, Trump's trade war. Uh, the NRA's fascinating metamorphosis from a group that believed in gun control to what they are now. Uh, also, uh, here in Iowa, we have, um, we have an interesting situation happening with Governor Reynolds that I think may be problematic for her campaign with the way she's handling the firing of David Jameson. We'll talk about uh, Trump's trade war. We'll talk about Scott Pruitt with the EPA. Maybe he's gone too far. Well, who knows? <laughs> uh, but uh, but we're also by the time he gets that, he could be attorney general. <laughs> well, he could be, yeah. All right, so um, you know the the story. Sometimes it's just really helpful to read between the lines, and I'm 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 looking at this story about uh, Kim Reynolds. So she's known David Jameson a long time. They were they were very closely associated uh, through the. Uh, uh, the uh, Iowa State County Treasurer's Association. Actually, it's, it's in that capacity that I first met Governor Reynolds. Mm-hmm. I met her and um, Joni Ernst on the same day. They came to lobby me when I was the ranking member of local government about some some really insignificant change uh, that we all voted for. Right. And while we were voting on it, while we were debating it and voting on it, they're kind of sitting in the back of the room giggling, um, <laughs> which was interesting. But uh, so um, – you know, it's the 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 relationship between these two is um, is interesting. It has very little to do with good policy or bad policy, which is really what most of us should, we mostly should be concerned about with Reynolds. She's had, she's compiled a track record that a lot of people I think have deep concerns about. But um, part of the part of the problem is this unwillingness to be open and honest and straightforward about what you're doing and why. And she fired Jameson mm. very quickly, very dramatically. Uh, um, without being willing to say anything about what the allegations of sexual harassment were. You know, she said that her staff learned about multiple state employees who had details of alleged harassment that they'd suffered by Jameson, but she refuses to talk about what those are. And at the same time, she's got this very long-lasting relationship with the guy, um, you know, dating back again to when they were treasurers. And... uh, and and uh, the uh, the Associated Press was able to get through the open records law a whole bunch of uh, Jameson's emails, right? Uh, Thirteen hundred pages of correspondence, uh, and there's some gems in there that um, I mean he had he'd approached Reynolds' uh, scheduler just a couple of days earlier, uh, saying, "quote It's been a while since I've had the chance to sit and visit with the governor. No agenda, just catch up, fun for me, and a break for her. I hope." And the response from Reynolds' scheduler was, I bet we can squeeze you in. And a couple of days later, he's got the axe. You, right. know? <laughs> I, I, you know, and some of, the, um, some of the correspondence about their previous work, I mean, he, uh, Jameson refers to Reynolds as, says, quote, Kim and I were all over central Iowa, Iowa yesterday to Perry to finalize details for the leadership retreat, then to the Capitol. Um, they talk about, he talks about um, Reynolds being my, quote, planning partner. And noted they visited the historic hotel in northeast Iowa. I'm assuming that might be the one in Decor. Uh, while they were organizing a leadership retreat, um, you know, I, there's a lot going on here that's not being discussed. And what is, it, what is it you think is going on? I think they've had some kind of a you know a, a deep connection that may be problematic politically. 
And I think that just hasn't come out yet. I, you know, I, I can't say that for sure, but trying to piece all this together, it doesn't make any sense that she would take that action and not, re- not, not respond to repeated inquiries and growing inquiries about what happened. You know, again, this is not an important life and death issue affecting the state of Iowa. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, it's one that, of course, the media has a lot of interest in and the general public is very curious about. And it speaks to the capacity for leadership when you are – you know, when you take an action quickly, and sometimes it makes sense to do something decisively, but then when you're not willing to explain why and talk about the details, that raises suspicions, especially when you've got this longstanding rapport with this guy. You know? Well, I mean, in the context of some of the, um, you know, very um, well publicized Me Too sort of uh, firings, like yeah. uh, Matt Lauer and things like that. I mean, the urgency there, I guess, seemed fairly obvious once the alleg- some of the allegations sure. came out. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I, I am a little baffled by the the ob- obscure approach here, which is just saying there's allegations. Yeah. Can you think Were there it- allegations to human resources? Was this handled? Or yeah. What, what are mean, these? I mean, this is a high-profile allegation. Mm-hmm. And um, I can't think of another high-profile case, whether it's involving politicians or Garrison Keillor or, or Lauer or, or any other one, other person, where there haven't been some details, a long time, in many cases, a lot of details released, mm-hmm. and where people haven't been willing to speak out, right. uh, the, where the victims uh, haven't been willing to speak out. This baffles me, and it means something else is going on, is all I can say. And do you think this is something that's going to come up in the... Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think I think this is the beginning of a revelation about you know what what the rapport has been between Jameson and Reynolds, and a, and a, and a revelation about what really is behind this firing. Because if it was a <clears throat> if it was a slam dunk, if it was um, you know this employee and this employee were you know had this specific action done against them by Jameson, mm-hmm. that'd be a no brainer. Right. But that's you know if if that's what the case was, she'd say that. Mm-hmm. She's not saying that. So what really did happen? And why is this happening now? And what is the history between these two? I mean, again, just a couple of days before he's axed, he sends this very cordial and casual invitation to catch up over coffee to Reynolds mm-hmm. and gets a favorable response from staff. He also was ready to, um, you know, ready to uh, go to a conference, I believe, in Cedar Rapids. So, boom, this hits him, hits him pretty blindsided, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's going on? The whole story is not here. Actually, I think very little of the story is here. But I think my impression is that there are people digging to figure out what went on. And, again, that's great. We need to know. You know, uh, it, it does say something about integrity and, um, and uh, open government. I wish we'd spend less time on this, though, and more time on some of the real issues. Right, right now as we speak, you know, the Republican leadership at the Iowa House is trying to take another stab at organized labor. Mm. Uh, we just talked about how they 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 successfully took a stab at uh, the Latino community. Uh, we all know I, I've been talking you know endlessly about how they've been beating up on on uh, on the the landowners and those of us concerned about the pipeline mm-hmm. uh, and those of us who believe in free speech and uh, and the importance of nonviolent protests. So. You know, there are definitely more important issues out there, and that's just, that's just a, that's a short list. I didn't even talk about choice or about education or about all the other things that are happening. That's the short list. This is, not, this is a distraction. 
but it does say volumes about integrity and character, uh, and people have a right to know, and she's not letting people know. And in the era of Trumpism, <laughs> what be that, short era. Yeah, what? How does integrity <clears throat> become an issue in the election anymore? <laughs> well, you know. Just because he seems to be the Teflon president when it comes to all matters of personal integrity and discretion doesn't mean it, it trickles down to the rest of the political universe, as we've seen from the Me Too campaign. Yes. You know, so um, I think Reynolds is very vulnerable in this. I, you know, if, if this comes out badly for her, she may not be the Republican nominee. That, I mean, that may be a stretch, but it's, it's not inconceivable that if this goes really badly for her as more and more information comes to light, she may not be the nominee. And that could be a very interesting situation in terms of what the Republican Central Committee would then do. Would they, would they select Ron Corbett, mm. who only missed being a candidate by, by eight, eight signatures, eight, right. uh, who is a very you know, credible uh, – in terms of policy, he probably knows more about policy than anybody running. That doesn't mean he's always on the right side of policy. True. <laughs> but yeah. he's a bright guy. Um, and I think a very credible threat to any Democrat that would – whichever Democrat wins the nomination, possibly a greater threat than Reynolds. Reynolds is pretty weak on policy. And when it comes to one-on-one, you know, debate about issues, she's not that strong. And any, you know, among the Democrats running, um, you know, I, I think there's at least three of them that could be very, very strong in terms of um, presenting uh, the, way, the way Vilsack did against Jim Ross Lightfoot back in 1998. You know, Vilsack just ate Ross Lightfoot up when it came to talking about issues. Mm. And I think that would happen with Reynolds. I think at least three of the four Democrats running would be able to do that. Now, with Corbett, that couldn't happen. So, I, you know, I, again, I don't know what the Republican Central Committee would do. And again, I'm, I'm speculating way out here. I'm speculating. I would say, yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, true. yeah. If, if this gets so bad that she has to pull out, mm-hmm. who will the Republicans nominate? And they may not nominate Corbett because, because they've, got, they've, got, they've thrown their, their weight so far behind the Reynolds ticket that, who knows, they may go some other direction. I don't know. But, uh, again, that's, um, that's speculating to the, uh, what, third or fourth degree. But it's fun to do. <laughs> <laughs> but not as fun as the fun we're going to have in the next day when we talk about Scott Pruitt. Well, Scott Pruitt's certainly an example of integrity not mattering. Right. Well, integrity, uh, and you don't even have to believe in science. Well, there's many things about Scott Pruitt. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's hard. I, I, I don't know where we are. I really don't know where we are as a lo- local electorate anymore. Um, there are things that are showing that the Trump plan may actually be deleterious for Iowa specifically. But let's save that for the next That's segment. That's correct. All right. We're going to come back after a short break here, folks. Stick with us. Dr. Charles Goldman and I discussing the uh, Scott Pruitt's, um, well, specifically his uh, efforts to roll back emission standards. But we'll touch a few of the topics as well. And, and you know, at some point, uh, is he also going to become a liability and become one of the many, many uh, appointees that uh, Trump ends up abandoning? We'll be back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. So on guard, who knows what the fates have in store. Hello, folks. Uh, thanks for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum. With me in the studio, Dr. Charles Goldman. Before we launch into our conversation about Scott Pruitt, all right, so um, we talked a bit last week about Scott Pruitt's uh, war on um, emission standards. He, um, he, he uh, came after Obama's um, changes requiring that the vehicles be up to, what, 36 miles per, per gallon by 2025, I believe. 
I think the overall fleet mileage has to be in the 50s right. by 2025. Right. And so uh, Pruitt, of course. Or as, carried- as, as as President Trump calls it, the CAFE standards, but he spells it capital C, lowercase AFE. He doesn't know it's Does an acronym. Does he put a little accent on the E? He doesn't even know it's an acronym. <laughs> CAFE standards, yeah. <laughs> Cabbage standards. How how we how we manage mm-hmm. uh, manage coffee and tea. And, exactly. Uh, all right. So um. So yeah. I mean, I think it's a pretty bad thing. It's uh. It's all indications are it's going to be uh. You know, driving up the no pun intended, driving up the production of SUVs and gas guzzling vehicles. I mean, we're that's happening now. More and more of those are being made, and more and more people are buying them because gas prices are low, and uh, exp- and now with emission standards being being you know laxed. Uh, I just mm-hmm. I just see it continuing to go the wrong direction. Well, l- let's talk about a couple things. First of all, um, you know, a- as we all know, much of policy in the Trump administration is for Fox News distribution with no follow-up story. <laughs> so Pruitt gets to go to the auto dealership and talk about how, as of course everything Republicans do, we're increasing choice right. for they're, the American people. Pro-choice, right? Um, <laughs> right. So right. let let's first of all look at a. Uh, problem which they're going to run into and then we're also going to talk a little bit about the fact that there's a lot of announcements out of the EPA but many of the things that they claim are happening are never going to happen or that they're trying to make happen will never happen. So first of all, we already know that California has told them they will not go along with any change in the Obama agreement. Because California has a waiver provided by the Obama administration, which this administration could No, the waiver was actually provided in in the early 1970s when the air in Los Angeles was green most of the time. Green is not a great – it's a great great color for your lawn, but not your air. Exactly. And so – and we already know on multiple things, including sanctuary cities and other things, California as an entity has said, we will fight you in the courts. Yeah. But, but, you know, Obama did something to help reinforce that waiver, I believe, right? I'm not sure that he did. Okay. But, the, the, but the fact of the matter is 13 other states use it as their standards too, including yep. New York and Massachusetts. And, in fact, one About a third of, the country. A third of yeah. the country uses California's higher standards. So, as usual, um, industry has a problem here, which is do you – this, the fight with California is going to go on and on. Yeah, but what's to what's stop the Trump administration from from eliminating the waiver so that they have to comply? Because they'll with, take them to court and they'll immediately will be uh, – there'll be a stay. There'll be a stay on that because mm-hmm. they don't have – and we'll talk a little bit about this. They don't have the even rationale for why they're doing what they're doing. The, the EPA has lost under the Pruitt uh, leadership in court almost every time. Um, there was an excellent article from the Times. Um he, they had to back down on Pruitt's wanting to delay implementation of smog regulations. They had to withdraw another regulation reducing mercury p- pollution, which, of course, is a big problem based on burning coal for power plants. And um, they also were told by the courts uh, that they had to finish the lead paint uh, regulation, even though they, of course, didn't Mediation. want to because – right. So I wonder how much these lawsuits are costing the taxpayers. And if you're losing all of them, that's not a very well, – that's true, of course. And, well, in addition to the cone of silence that's been put into his office so he can't hear his conversations and the millions of dollars of security because people are sending, quote, death threats to Secretary Pruitt saying, hey, you're screwing up the environment. We hate you. Um, but let, <laughs> Is that happening? Oh, yeah. I missed that one. No, this is, this is why he's claiming that he needs security. He has almost as much security as Trump does. Oh. Because he says there's so many people out there who are, are threatening him. 
But but he says that, but it is, he doesn't offer the verification. Correct. We, right. we don't yeah. see that. But now the, yeah. the thing is that um, when the Obama administration uh, made their case for the changes and, and – and, and, Let's be clear. The changes that the Obama administration was demanding, to some degree, modest, were achievable with technology that is not all that sophisticated. It yeah. doesn't mean every car has to be an electric car. doesn't mean you have to get rid of every SUV. It involves making cars lighter. It involves using turbocharging. And it uses technologies that are using tires that are less resistant, all these things can add mileage fairly significantly. It right, right, doesn't right. require retooling your entire industry. So they put out a technical document that was 1,217 pages long justifying the science of how this could be done. The document that's being filed by Pruitt saying he's going to roll these back is 38 pages. Of those 38 well, he gets, pages, he gets, he gets points for cons- being concise, right? <laughs> there of the 38 pages, 20 of them are direct lifts from automaker complaints about having to do it, or their front organizations. Yeah, there is no court, not even with the Trump appointees. There is no court that is going to look at a 38-page document for making this major change that is going to say that's fine. Okay, so so between. Between the, between the lack of any real rationale as to why this change is needed uh, and California's tenacity at, uh, at, at taking these battles to court and winning, that spells uh, you know, a positive outcome for them and the other 13 states that, uh, that follow their lead on emissions. Well, standards. not only that, but uh, if, if, if we're so pro-American industry, uh, industry hates uncertainty. This means that this sure. – this is going to be an uncertain factor for many years to come. Right. So what are the car companies supposed to do? And, of course, we're talking about car companies that are making profits hand over fist. Car companies that, by the way, uh, took taxpayer money for the bailout to survive. Uh, yeah. Um, How much was that again? <laughs> like A 80, lot of money. Yeah, yeah like $80 billion. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the – uh, rationale for picking Pruitt at the EPA. Remember, whenever you listen to MSNBC or any of them, they say, well, Pruitt filed suit against the EPA 14 times. He lost 12 of those. <laughs> so this is and not, his track record with the EPA is no better. Right. So yeah. this is not somebody who is going to – within you, you can't just change administrative rules – by fiat, yeah. you know, and, and this is the way we've gotten used to governance yeah. going, but it, it will not work. And the fact of the matter is, as much as I'm upset about it as you are, I think that there are compelling factors that will push this off into the future to the point where it's not going to happen because there will no longer be well, yeah, but, I mean, they're, they're, and, and the administration. I, mean, I think they're going to – don't you think they're going to uh, make the change? They're going to scale back the emission standard. Then they'll be sued. And it'll be put on hold in California and the other 13 states. But what about the rest of the country where those standards don't apply? Where they, where they, where they? Well, they'll stay where they are now. I mean, there still are standards now that are more rigorous than the right. ones that Pruitt wants so to what, put in place. Why do you think they'll stay where they're at now? With, because what like, else? Do you, does a, does a car company want to retool to to lower standards? So only the four years from now be told, so, no, you have to retool to a higher. Standard. So they'll stay where they are now, not because they. I mean, they, it, it's more of a, a market driven decision mm-hmm. than than a decision driven by any policy from the White House. Uh, correct. I mean, it, it is a market-driven decision. And the other thing is they're going to have competition from cars from outside the United States, including China, that are going to be 
way ahead of us technologically in terms of electric, in terms of hybrid, in terms of using gas engines to get better mileage. And so all they're guaranteeing is you can force, you know, uh, tariffs up on steel. It's not going to force people to buy American cars mm. if the technology isn't – you know, there's a lot of people out there. The majority of this country believes in climate change. The majority of this country does want to find a way to burn less gasoline, you know, and um, it, it, we're just being driven by a minority at this point. Yeah, a very powerful one that uh, I've also learned how to uh – uh, set up uh, a voting system that tends to benefit those who want to keep the Sure. I mean, they have exposed – the Republicans yeah. have brilliantly exposed every weakness in 200-plus years of this democratic system. Every weakness they have exploited. exploited and exacerbated some of them. Right. So, hey, uh, Dr. Charles Goldman with me. I, I, again, you're, you're, really, you're really up to speed on this stuff. I presume that you're studying this material while you're operating on your patients. <laughs> I mean, where else would you find time to do all this uh, the, the, research? Well, actually, now that I'm dealing mostly with uh, terminal patients, there's there's time on my hands. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, when we get back, we're going to talk about uh, something else near and dear to Charles's heart: uh, trade. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bring to get here, and I wish you could do something about that, Doctor Goldman. Well, it, it's interesting <clears throat> because um, you know the the the, re- the reason that the jet stream is so southerly, which is why we're on the wrong side of it, is that as you start melting the North Pole, which is what's going on, yeah. uh, it does tend to uh, drive the jet stream further south, and this, this may be the new norm. Uh, wow. But that is science. I know so, that I know that, that doesn't count anymore in, in, no. the, uh, yeah. in, in yeah. the Trump world. But. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Charles Goldman here with me. Uh, we're going to talk about trade and how, well, how the trade war might backfire, but give us your overview of what's uh, – I mean, and this is a – this is like a tennis match that uh, every time you turn your head, there's a new volley. And so I don't know where this is going to lead or end. But every time you every, – every day there's something um, something even more drastic being proposed. Well, the – you know, the idea of using uh, – if, if we go back to the beginning of the 20th century, um, the main revenue source for the federal government at that time were tariffs. Right. Um, and – Tariffs were, were the norm until uh, the 1930s when Smoot-Hawley tariffs went in place and the belief has been that those tariffs were instrumental in turning a mild worldwide recession into a worldwide depression, which then led to World War II. Um, we live in a time which is completely different from the 1930s. We are an interdependent world economically. And what you see is uh, it is kind of like Pong. So <clears throat> if you say, okay, I'm going to protect our steel and aluminum industry, retaliation from your target is going to now influence negatively other industries in your own country. And, and the driver on these tariffs is not really about economics. I mean, it's it, you know the, the Trump economic team has this vague idea about deficits. The trade deficit is a terrible thing. Although, of course, you know, making your deficit one point five trillion dollars more by changing your tax law doesn't yeah. seem to bother them. Um, and <clears throat> also trying to figure out which constituencies they can most favorably affect to keep them voting Republican. And they have well, lit on the coal industry, the steel, and aluminum industries. 
the sure yeah but now but now they're i mean the 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 response from the farm community to what could impact soybeans corn cotton other commodity crops hogs uh, it's it's not favorable it's it's um you know if the republicans at the Iowa legislature and other other state houses are trying to alienate latino voters through bans on sanctuary cities mm-hmm. Then, um, <laughs> I mean, it's actually, it's, we should really just call it just a d- denial of local control to best manage uh, your law enforcement practices. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in this case, um, this is going to hit the Trump base pretty hard. Correct. And you're already seeing the commentary um, is not very favorable. So I, I don't know how far he's going to take this or, you know, how, what, what kind of impact it might have if it goes, does continue. But, um, I mean, politically – well, the problem the problem becomes that he's really committed to the tariffs on steel and aluminum, and he identified China erroneously mm. as a major player in in those two industries, which they really are not. Yeah, um, probably the major player in that in the steel industry is Brazil. Yeah, um, there's also a big and player aluminum is Canada. Yeah. Aluminum is Canada. Yeah, so. It, 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 it was a political play, and you're absolutely right. The uh, immediately, uh, you know, they, the Chinese didn't initially announce that soybeans were going to be part of the deal. Yeah. Initially, it was going to be, you know, wine and some other things. But then um, they kind of doubled down and and said that they would, you know, put the tariff on soybeans. And soybeans represents about a third of the market. Uh, China is a third of the market for Iowa soybeans yeah, at this yeah, point. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the price right. of soybeans immediately tanked. And as, as you well know as being a farmer, yeah, you, yeah. you make commitments yeah. based on information you have at the beginning of the growing season or even before. And then if things happen, you, you're not even at break even anymore. And, and this, of course, rolls over into hogs because evidently um, the Chinese are – Huge consumers of Midwestern hogs and pork. Yeah, but about twenty five percent of our hog crop right goes to China. So and that's going to keep increasing, especially it, you know. But there's a couple things to this. First mm-hmm. of all, um, yeah, there 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 are some people who don't like the impact that large hog confinements have had on Iowa, who see this as favorable. If it suppresses hog production, that could be a no pun intended, breath of fresh air to those who've been living next to these confinements and are concerned about them expanding. Yeah, I, I, uh, I agree with you. <laughs> I mean, I, I, think, I, I think you could make the argument <clears throat> that um, the consumerism of the United States is based on cheap pricing of products that are brought in, for the most part, from Asia, not just from China. I mean, textiles from Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and places like that. And so to some degree, um, if this forces prices up, it would reduce the amount of resources we devote to things that, for, in many ways, we don't need. We overeat anyway, in, you know, in, in many ways. Um, we overconsume product of other types. We don't really need as many new cars as we buy. Yeah. So you're right. I mean, but, there is a there is a there is a upside to this. And the genesis of this whole uh, uh, trade war is, of course, Trump's outspoken opposition to NAFTA. And other trade mm-hmm. treaties, and that which helped him win several Rust Belt states that you know normally Republicans don't win, and so this seems like a way to follow through on that campaign promise mm-hmm. 
And uh, it's interesting, you know, I, I mean, th- and this is what, uh, I mean, fighting NAFTA is what, I, I ran on that when I ran for governor. Mm-hmm. I, 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 didn't li- I don't like the impact that NAFTA has had on, on uh, manufacturing in this country mm-hmm. or agriculture in, in, uh, in uh, south of the border. I know it's been a boon for agriculture here, but overall, it's uh, it's been problematic, and and you know a lot of a lot of progressive candidates run on that, and here you have Trump running in the, on that and winning in part because of it, and now he's now he's got to do well, something to deliver on that promise. Yeah, you know, we'll we'll talk about in our in additional <clears throat> segment uh, a little bit about the fact that the equation of free trade with driving down wages is not a given. There are many countries, two examples being Denmark, which Bernie Sanders uses quite a bit, and Germany that, in fact, have high are high wage states that countries. are also free. Yeah. yeah, that that are also free trade free traders. It is not. We've 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 been led to believe that trade policy is what causes wages and jobs to disappear. It's internal employment policies, in particular. Uh, the evisceration of the workers' movement. So you would disagree with labor unions who have criticized NAFTA from the word go. You don't think it uh, – I mean, honestly, how you can say it hasn't had an impact here. I mean, you have factories that have moved the, overseas, just south of the border, in fact, or to Southeast Asia, where they have um, you know cheaper free land, uh, really cheap labor, and low standards for worker safety and environmental protection. I mean, how is that not – But that's ha- true in Germany, too. And yet they're able to maintain a much higher standard of living for middle-class wait, wait, workers. What's true in Germany? They also have, have – they, they live in a free trade environment also yeah, where there's free but mobility. But they have high standards for environmental protection and worker safety. Correct. And six weeks of vacation every year. Right. I understand that. The point is it's, it, it is employment <clears throat> policy in this country. It's the misnomer of that not having unions gives you the right to work. It gives you the right to work at crap jobs. Hmm. It, you know, and it is also the expectation that Americans want to go down to their big box store and pay the cheapest price possible. There is a price to pay for that. Yeah. And for instance, blaming China. Everyone looks at the iPhone and says, oh, you know, it's, it's all China. Four percent of the uh, expense of producing an iPhone is attributable to China. Four percent. Ninety-six percent is the fact that Semiconductor manufacturers that are elsewhere, you know, whatever other parts, the camera parts, they're just assemblers. And China is very well set up. They have a good ecology for being able to assemble. A good ecology. Well, they, they have an ecology that, that allows them. Now, now, I'm not talking about the ecology of the environment. I'm talking about the ecology of right. their industry yeah. is very well set up to be able to do things hmm. with high productivity. But as their productivity goes up, their wages are also going up. Weirdly, and we'll talk about this, that's what should happen. Okay, yeah, and so and we do have to go to uh, a break here, which uh, for those listening live on KDLF AM and FM is the, uh, is the end of this uh, live broadcast, but we will continue the conversation uh, on podcast and live stream and on the community-owned stations that rebroadcast this program. I, I do want to – I think I, – I would just say to wrap up, I think the political consequences of what Trump is doing on trade are huge and could have a major backlash in some of the states that he carried, like Iowa, like Pennsylvania, you know, like, like Wisconsin. We'll see. Anyway, Dr. Mm-hmm. Charles Goldman and I, we will, we will be back if you're listening uh, beyond this uh, station to the live broadcast. And, uh, again, thanks to our producer, Matty Kane. Thanks to Juan Rodriguez and the other, other folks here at Lorena. We'll be back in a few minutes. And, again, we'll be back live next Monday at 11 o'clock. 
remember you. Welcome back to the uh, Fallon Forum. Dr. Charles Goldman and I here in the studio as we continue our conversation about tariffs. We're going to talk also about the NRA and its interesting history, which apparently was much more favorable toward gun control at one time. Interesting. But let's, uh, let's first um, dig a little bit deeper into the tariff situation. And that is a very, very prominent and important discussion right now. Yeah, and I, I have to admit that um, I had to go and do a little more reading on tariffs myself since... Um, Again, while you're operating well, on a Yeah, exactly. Right? We, don't, we don't usually find that in the anatomy books. Um, and, and actually, what, what I, quite, I found quite fascinating is uh, Paul Krugman, who's the... Paul Krugman. Krugman, who's yeah. the economist who writes for The Times, in 2010 was writing about that we should have a 25% tariff on everything that came out of China. Now, of course, Krugman is very much against what the, President Trump is doing. So I, I kind of went back and looked and said, well, what's this about? And the argument he was making at the time was that the tariffs are used for two things. I mean, the point of a tariff is to raise the price of an import if it's being artificially depressed. Now, artificial, what could artificially depress it would be if the company, the country from which we are um, importing is subsidizing the price to be lower. Right. Or they're doing currency manipulation, which China was doing, yeah. to artificially depress the price. The, neither of these are the case right now. In fact, ironically, um, ironically, which, which country is giving their consumers um, a subsidy that is equivalent to one-third of an electric car's price? Okay. The United Tri States or tri China? Trivia question. Uh, I was going to say Luxembourg, but you've narrowed the choices. U.S. or China? U.S. No, actually China. <laughs> so uh, as we said before, uh, we're going to be outstripped by these other countries yeah. in terms of uh, fighting uh, global warming. So, so yeah, well, yeah, in, but, yeah, in terms of fighting global warming, but also in terms of this trade war. This is the right. trade war that Trump can't win. Well, it's a trade war that will not get the result that he's hoping for. The, the situation is we have a trade deficit. Why do we have a trade deficit? Yeah, because we sell more than we buy. Buy more than we sell. No, Sorry. the real reason we have a trade <laughs> deficit is that we have a very low savings rate in this country. And that makes it an attractive place for foreigners to put their money. So trade deficits artificially keep interest rates down. Mm -hmm. So the the housing boom in the United States, the mortgages being cheap, the consumerism in the United States, which is backed on being able to buy things like a car for 0%, is actually predicated on the trade deficit being in place. Mm -hmm. So you get rid of your trade deficit, and your interest rates are going to go up, and you're going to see less foreign investment, which means you're going to have to start investing money from Americans in projects, like infrastructure projects, like rebuilding industries. Um, it, these are all intertwined. And this, this equation that's been made by the right that um, you can't have high wages, you know, with a, um, a, a trade deficit is wrong. Yeah, you said that earlier. I, Germany you know. has some of the highest wages yeah, yeah. In, in the world. Sure. All right. And they have no trade deficit. Right. Okay. But what we've gotten here in the United States is that 
we have low wages because the American worker has not gotten the advantage of the productivity with which they work. Mm -hmm. In most places, productivity and wages go hand in hand. So when you make a shirt, you don't need a highly technical, uh, you know, you don't need a highly technical workforce to do that. That's why it's cheaper to do in Bangladesh and Vietnam. They are low productivity countries that nevertheless can make a shirt more cheaply. <clears throat> well, and, and, and you go, they're, 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 they're starting to fight back. They're starting to demand higher wages. Right. They're starting to demand buildings that don't burn to the ground regularly. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and um, I see what's going to happen overall here is that a lot of these industries are going to start being pushed back to the place that can offer the least resistance. And I think that's, I think that's here. I think we're going to be, I think we're already seeing it when, when it comes to hog production. I mean, we're, we're China's pork producer right exactly. now. Exactly. And you see more and more corporations buying land in the U.S. Right now, right now foreign corporations own, a, own farmland equivalent to the size of Tennessee. Right. It's huge. And it's getting bigger. Uh, and, and you can also, you know, I, I know right now we're, we're exporting our oil, exporting our gas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and we aren't exporting wind overseas, but we are exporting it from rural areas to, or we're threatening to export it from rural areas to big cities. And, um, you know, as I argued in my blog last week, I think we're becoming a colonial outpost. And that's, that, that, to me, well, ties in with this whole conversation. There, there's a spectacular article in Rolling Stone talking about exactly what you're saying, which is if you become the hog producer for the world, you then accept the ecological consequences. Which are huge. Right. And they are generally, you know, local. Yeah, well, so you do. don't see them on the coast, yeah, local, but we see them here in yeah, Iowa local, or in North or in Carolina. The, or, in, or in the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, tariffs are not going to answer the question. Yeah. Tariffs will not fix what's wrong with the American worker. What's wrong with the American worker is they are underpaid for their productivity because the top 1% and the corporate masters overpay themselves for what they do and underpay the American worker. By a greater and greater margin every year. Right. And the only way that that is going to change is with the worker taking back power as a collective. So, hey, we've got to run to a short break here. When we come back, we're going to talk about the NRA and its history. It's really important to put that historical perspective into the conversation we're having about gun violence and the uh, March for Our Lives movement. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Hey, this is Ed Fallon again with Dr. Charles Goldman here as we uh, continue our broadcast on the Fallon Forum. Uh, Charles, uh, you pointed out something that to me was not, I, I did not know this. You said the NRA has a history that involves being supportive of gun control. That's correct. Uh, that, that's a total shocker to me. Right. The NRA, Probably to most people. The NRA um, supported most major gun control measures into and through the 1970s. Um, they were not the Second Amendment civil rights group that they uh, now portray themselves as at that time. And then uh, what happened was that a, a longtime NRA member was shot and paralyzed by the ATF when they uh, raided his house for having uh, guns. Which case was that? Uh, was a gentleman by the name of Kenyon Ballou. And then, of course, we, we started to have that I, I was going to guess Ruby Ridge, but I wouldn't. <laughs> no, 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 this no. was not Ruby Ridge. Um, and then, exactly, that's what happened. The We had a number of events like Waco, Ruby Ridge, the, the conspiracy surrounding the Kennedy assassination, mm -hmm. uh, the, then ultimately with the Clintons, the conspiracies, you know, surrounding, um, you know, the various things that 
they will claim to have done. And the organization changed, and actually the leadership was ousted by the hardliners in the late 70s, who now all of a sudden discovered the Second Amendment so, as precluding so, any restrictions. So it was the transition guns. from a group that supported some gun control measures to one that's, that opposes everything. Was it, was it philosophical or was it, was it economic? Oh, no, no. I mean, it, su supporting no gun control measure is about the fact that the organization is lock, stock, and barrel owned <laughs> nice by, the, by the gun manufacturers right sure. now. And that, that was not the case prior to the 1970s. No, no they, were a, a, they were a member dues-driven organization that was there to promote so, gun safety so, and mark, mark. So did they use the blue case, the blue shooting uh, by the ETF as, as an excuse to uh, move in a new, new direction? It, it, no, they, or would it, it just, it, it changed the leadership to the younger leadership that was of the conspiratorial. Second Amendment is about protecting ourselves from the hegemony of the government. And then ultimately the gun manufacturers took advantage of that change as we came into the 2000s to turn the organization into basically a lobbying organization for their interests. Now with the Minuteman and militia groups, uh, you know, really effectively capturing that, that, that far-right perspective on, on the Second Amendment, maybe the NRA can move back to a more reasonable reasonable posture, huh? <laughs> I'm not just, sure. Just hoping. <laughs> I think they've made a lot more money by taking this position than yeah, but taking that, the but, the, but right now they, they're losing social and political capital right now in a big way. You've got, you've got big corporations like Delta and... Uh, and um, not, not Bass Pro, but uh, uh, Dick Sporting Goods, mm -hmm. uh, bailing on on some of the you know key you know key weapon systems that the NRA supports, and um, that's that's only going to continue the momentum toward some kinds of changes that maybe the gun manufacturers aren't going to like, but the vast majority of Americans feel are reasonable. Well, oh, okay. Gun, you know, gun ownership in the United States has actually been declining in the sense of households for 30 years, 40 years. But the number of guns owned is, is Because the it's the same people buying guns. Yeah. Basically, that's what's happening. That's why they're reaching out to new groups like women. Mm. You know, that's why they put out the AR-15 versions in pink. And, you know, they, they make contributions to breast cancer prevention or treatment from, uh, you know, buying guns at, 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 at Bass Pro Shop. Mm. So, um, it's a, in some sense, it's a business which is deteriorating. Mm. Um, so no, I don't see the NRA changing. It is basically a marketing arm of the gun manufacturers yeah. at this point. I think they're going to have to change. I think the pol political momentum on this issue is unstoppable at this point. I don't know how far it's going to go, but something's going to give. It, it just depends on what state you're in. I think. Well, I think yeah. there's going to be no. I think there'll be changes nationally. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll we'll place a friendly wager on this after we get off the air. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>